0: The car business is rapidly changing and modern car dealers are meeting the demand. I'm Michael Cirillo and together, we're going to explore what it takes to create a thriving dealership and life in the retail automotive industry. Join me each week for inspiring conversations with subject matter experts that are designed to help you grow. This is The Dealer Playbook. On this episode, I'm glad to be joined by someone who has vast industry experience working in various OEM roles, including Group Vice President of Infinity Americas, Chairman of Infinity Motor Company, and who now currently serves as the Vice President of U.S. Marketing and Sales for Nissan North America, Mike Collar, and welcome to the Dealer Playbook Podcast. Mike,
1: glad to be here today. Thank you for having me.
0: Now, I see you on Fox News and all of the news, and I think, (laughs) what. In the world, did I do to deserve this this uh, <laughs> this interview? And I'm so excited you're here. Um, I do have one question to kick this off. You know, since your days working at Saab Automobile and Cadillac to present, I'm curious about what shifts you've witnessed or experienced in the industry up to this point, and whether or not there was any sense that those shifts or pivots were 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 coming as you were working in those various roles.
1: Okay, um, that, that's that's great, and and for someone that's been in the industry for uh, uh, thirty some odd years, and actually, if you go back even further in my career, uh, prior to some military service, I grew up in an automotive family, so I've seen a, a lot of those shifts, and uh, uh, you know, probably the one that is the, the the most impactful is the one that you're seeing right now, and and uh, you know, we're seeing that shift uh, clearly from uh, what has been. For the last hundred years, internal combustion engines to uh, to electric uh, vehicles and alternate uh, uh, powertrains, and uh, and that shift has been, I think, extremely transformative for the industry. And I think we're going to see more. But even reaching further back, you, know, you think about the uh, uh, the difficulties the industry had. Uh, with, uh, you know, post the Lehman shock and uh, and how uh, that started to transform the industry as well. Uh, and, and the transformation wasn't so much in terms of product, it was more in terms of uh, the way the businesses were run. Uh, they moved from uh, from a larger, higher capacity, uh, some in some cases over capacity um, and, and, and extremely high fixed costs to, uh, you know, a much more, um, a leaner um, uh, approach to the business and a more global approach to the business and we saw that with platforms uh, starting to be uh, uh, commonized and, and utilized across a, a larger uh, a larger space then of course uh, e- even in between that you saw the transformation as we started to move, um uh, for, uh i would say in the us more uh towards a, a more european platform which um or or landscape which was uh, more uh, you know less sedans um and smaller smaller vehicles and then of course the transformation with suvs coming in as well so seen a lot of transformation over the years uh and uh but the one that we're that's in front of us right now is is probably the most transformative and will have the longest lasting impact, maybe for the, the next hundred years. Hmm,
0: interesting. It's funny you say that too. I was actually shocked. I, I had a speaking engagement in Holland a few years ago. And it was interesting to see, as you say, there's the, the European differences where even, you know, say for example in North America. If you work in agriculture, it's pretty common that you're going to be driving a pickup truck or something to that effect. But as you say, the difference there is they were all driving uh, like cube vans and, mm-hmm. you know, smaller vehicles. And I also thought it was interesting. I, I, I remember we were headed to a conversation with some of the, the um, leaders at Peugeot automaker and we passed the Tesla factory and I said, this is interesting. And they said, that's what all the taxi drivers drive here. You know, it didn't have that same, <laughs> you know, appeal as it did here. So I think that's really interesting. And, and as you say, we're, we're on the verge here of something that is really impactful. It's certainly conversation that a lot of retail dealers have. And so now I'm curious, as you've experienced all of that, what do you believe from your vantage point, Mike, what do you believe the highest priorities for retail dealers should be looking forward to the next three, five, perhaps seven years.
1: Yeah. Without a doubt, customer service. Uh, delivering a world-class customer experience, I think, is going to be one of the key differentiators uh, uh, for our, our dealers in a world where um, fixed costs again, um, and there's a lot of pressure downward pressure um, uh, as there needs to be on fixed costs. Um, uh, the challenge will be delivering that that incredible world-class experience and still being able to control fixed costs. We know that the move to electrification won't be inexpensive for the industry or for our dealers. uh, And we're going to have to find ways to to be better and still, um, deliver, um, like I said, that world-class experience. And, um, I think that'll be the biggest uh, biggest challenge that faces our our dealers uh as uh, as we move forward into the the future. I think the transformation from uh from internal combustion to EV uh, will be uh, uh, will be something that they'll have to grapple with. Not so much from a sales side standpoint, but certainly from a service standpoint. And there's been a lot of discussions around that. Um, some alarmist and some, um, I would say, more moderate uh, as uh, um, uh, EVs still need to have work and consumers uh, will have other opportunities as well um, uh, within the EV space. And dealers uh, will be able to leverage that opportunity uh, and create new uh, streams of revenue um and uh and and dealers will uh, need to uh to tr- to transform to some extent and uh, we're certainly see it within our own industry i mean think about it you know we've been for 100 years uh primarily relying on mechanical engineers and now we have got to rely on chemists and and uh, electrical engineers so completely rethinking uh the business from uh top all the way through and uh and dealers uh, i think uh that will stand out will be the ones that deliver uh, just um, world-class unapproachable customer experience.
0: I think this is so amazing. You know, we recently did a study. It's kind of an ongoing living study at this point, but of all of the call it 500 plus interviews that we've conducted now over the seven and a half years. When I ask business leaders, what should dealers be focused on? I would say a high percentage of them echo your sentiment. And I think, it's for for good reason, you know. We don't get to have the the same vantage point that someone sitting in your seat does, and so to hear it from you just adds extra validation around the importance of customer service. I do have a question on the back end of that, which is, you know, as you've been discussing EVs and and the shift towards that and and the pivot from mechanical engineers to chemists and you know electrical and all of those sorts of things. Can you give me a sense? And you can, and by the way. The the DPB listeners know that the guest can say, "Cirillo, you need to just shut up because I'm not so like <laughs> so if if this is something that you, you're comfortable asking, I'm not going to ask anything controversial. But I'm wondering from your experience working at OEM at automaker level, is there a delay on? You, you know, I, I, I'm I'm thinking in my gut. I'm trying to think of the best way to a- ask this. Mike, is is there? a delay between when the automaker sees that something like EV is what needs to be focused on. And this perceived like, you caught me off guard that the dealer community always has like, where did EVs come from? Are you seeing this years in advance? Like, Hey, we got to move in this direction or, or is, is the automaker kind of in that same boat where we're like, Oh man, we gotta, we gotta start thinking about this.
1: I would say that generally, um, uh, our dealers, um, uh, certainly our Nissan dealers, uh, prove to me every day that they're students of the industry. Uh, they They kind of realize it as as we see it. Uh, We've been preparing for electrification for many years. Uh, We came out with the LEAF uh, 10 years ago. We we have 5 billion kilometers driven and 500,000 vehicles on uh, um, uh, incident-free miles driven by our uh, all-electric Nissan LEAF. And so um, our dealers are ready for electrification. Uh, They've been expecting it. I don't think anyone's been caught off uh, guard, you know, certainly the uh, the the change in uh, the the political landscape and ultimately uh, the move to uh, EV in a cleaner environment, which we completely support, uh, was anticipated. Sometimes, though, it's it's hard to judge the speed uh, of the movement. Um, and uh, and we know that there's different ways. You know, the consumer will move at a speed, uh, the industry will move at a speed. And then, of course, you know, regulatory moves at a speed as well. And sometimes they don't always match. Uh, but I would say that Nissan's well well positioned on the EV side. No question about it. We're all in. You may have seen the announcement we made the other day uh, in the UK about uh, EV360, which is a brand new uh, uh, battery electric uh, uh, SUV in a partnership with with Sunderland, 100% renewable microgrid. Um, so we're really investing, uh, uh, really hard into EV. Uh, and of course we have the all new Aria coming here, uh, in less than a year, uh, a battery electric, uh, crossover, which, uh, you know, we're gonna, uh, we're super excited about, but, uh, more importantly, uh, will, uh, help, uh, uh, Nissan help the industry transform into a cleaner, more renewable industry.
0: I'm, I'm really glad that, uh, the Nissan execs saw my feedback request that I have a daughter named Aria and that you should absolutely name a vehicle
1: Well, our, our chief marketing officer has a niece named Aria, and, uh, and we think that that's actually maybe where it really started. Uh, but uh, it's a great story. It's too long for today, day, but uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's uh, really cool. We we've been confused a couple times with the hotel, uh, but uh, but something completely different. Uh, so we're we're super excited to bring that to market, uh, and we start uh, our reservation program here in uh, uh, just a few months. So. Uh, I, I know she's
0: when she comes of age, she's only eight years old now but I'm I'm already anticipating an Aria sitting in my driveway for Aria. Well let's get her on the list. Um, yeah, we'll have to get her on the list. It's funny you say that too because I, I remember when I was first they I think they had just built that Aria hotel and we were expecting uh, my daughter and it was actually my first ever paid speaking engagement was at the Aria. And when my, when I came home, my wife said, "I think we should name her Aria." And I said, "You know, everybody's gonna say that I named her. We named her Aria because of, for some reason, my first gig with and uh, that that never came true. That's just me manifesting nothing." Um, I want to touch on something that you had mentioned earlier, um, just quickly in passing, and and that was your time in the military. I first want to thank you for that. Um, but it also brings up something that I think is really interesting. You, having served as a Marine Corps captain, um, would understand way better than I do the, the Marine motto of Semper Fidelis. And I'm wondering if that experience has had an impact, or, or particularly around that model, or, or that motto rather, has that had any impact on your leadership style and how you create um, culture and workplace
1: environments? Uh, Mike, great question. One hundred percent, yes. Um, Semper Fidelis, always faithful, um, uh, and uh, never uh, lost those ties to my my past, and still stay close to the to the past as well. Um, but certainly helps me um, every day. Um, uh, you know, probably at a base level, um, the discipline that you get, uh, from military service, I think serves you well in a corporate environment, I think in a business environment, uh, uh, for sure. Uh, but, uh, you know, I always challenge my team to, uh, lead from the front. Uh, you, you can't lead from uh, the chair that I'm sitting in right now. Uh, but, mm-hmm. uh, it's not where you need to lead from. You need to, to, to lead, uh, from the front uh, be present in the industry uh, as we say in the, the japanese business walk the gemba, uh, which is be there with the frontline troops um and uh, and then i have uh, a philosophy as well as training as uh, train your people well and then let them run uh, and the people will always amaze you and they always surpass my uh, my uh, expectations but uh, and this is a watchword for for all leaders, I think, and inspect what you expect. Um, uh, and if you do those things, um, you typically tend to be uh, successful. So, you know, I see uh, my military service as a, uh, a booster to my career. Um, and uh, there's really not a day that goes by where I don't draw on some experience from my past uh, to, to improve our future. Great, I think this uh, is,
0: Yeah, I, I think this is so tremendous. I mean, I have so many questions along that lines, but I, I will spare them um you know perhaps for another time i'd love to perhaps we'll we'll cross paths in person and i'll and i'll pick your brain but something you you said really intrigues me because i believe in it so deeply as i've built my business and we've placed emphasis on the training and process implementation and and kind of developing that muscle within people i know this is something that some leaders struggle with which is thinking that the training they've offered is adequate but then also being quick to fire people without, you know, perhaps internalizing did I do my part. How do you how do you navigate that as a leader? How do you balance that so that you do have a genuine sense of whether or not you empowered or got in the way of an individual from performing at their best?
1: Well, you know, individual performance, tough to talk about, but from a standpoint, you know, when you think about the group and and individuals within the group, it's um, my philosophy is just train, 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 always be constantly training, be ready uh, for uh, for the future. Um, And training may be more important now um, than ever. Uh, If you think about um, what we talked about earlier and move to electrification. Um, uh, there's a, there's a, there's a, a deep need uh, to, uh, I, in my opinion, uh, train even more uh, things like autonomous drive, um, where I think uh, uh, retraining the consumer as to what autonomous drive is, uh, what it can and can't do. Um, and, and all the benefits, uh, we, are, we are definitely working very hard in that area in terms of training to ensure uh, that consumers get the absolute best delivery um, that uh, they possibly can. And with all the new technologies in the car, uh, the delivery uh, is, is a challenge uh, for, uh, for um, our salespeople in our, in our showrooms. And uh, we're working very hard in that area. So, you know, I, I, there's no substitute for training. Um, I think the minute that you say, okay, we're okay. And training's okay. is probably the minute you're starting to fail. Uh, So, um, you know, you know, to dealerships out there that are listening or anybody in the, the, the uh, OEM world, I would say keep training. Uh, Please don't stop. Uh, You'll be better for it.
0: I love that. Um, I have one final question. I'm curious your thoughts on. We've spoken a, a bit here about electrification, where the industry is headed, that <laughs> Nissan in particular is going all in in that direction. And I know you've probably had your fair share of these conversations, like you're about to roll your eyes when I ask about chip shortages. But I was listening to your recent interview on Fox News and you spoke about or, or actually they, they kind of asked you about the impact of, of the chip shortage Um, And you had spoken to that effect of the impact that it has had on all automakers. I can only imagine that moving all in on electrification means a heavier dependence on chips, microchips, um, computer systems, all of those sorts of things. Have there been any conversations perhaps internally about how to mitigate this type of scenario from happening again in the future?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this isn't the first time that the industry has been hit with um, uh, supply shortages or or supply chain difficulties. Uh, That's true for I think all OEMs Including Nissan, um, a robust um, global supply chain is is uh, always needed, and, and we continue those conversations. You know, we're really in reinventing Nissan uh, from the ground up. Change the business, change the culture, change the product, and uh, we've done a great job on the product side. And Centra, New Rogue, and Pathfinder, New Frontier, all coming at us uh, and selling well in the marketplace. In um, fact, we just launched the all new Frontier. And uh, we've changed business um, in many different ways. Uh, And then changing the culture is all about changing the people and the attitudes. And uh, within changing the business um, and changing the culture is the supply chain uh, piece that you've you've taught, you've uh, you've asked about. And uh, we're certainly looking and examining our supply chain really every day to make sure that uh, that it can deliver what we expect and uh, so that we can deliver a, a, a product to consumer. Uh, that's that's safe. Uh, that's reliable and affordable as well um, so i would say it's an ongoing process every day uh certainly uh, this shortage has opened our eyes up to uh, some gaps uh in terms of uh, of uh, the robustness and uh, we're working hard to correct those and so you know the chip uh, shortage is affecting us it's affecting the entire industry uh we're starting to see the the light and and climb out but it's it's a long climb out uh, uh, and not just for our industry for some other industries as well.
0: Yeah. And I can only imagine just from an organizational perspective, how many plates are spinning at once to navigate a scenario like the, such as this, where perhaps where the rubber meets the road at the dealer level or at the end retail industry side of things, there's no way for us to actually know all of the things that are crossing your desk <laughs> that factor into this. But I can only imagine um, there are things that we don't understand and it always interests me because I don't get the opportunity often to, to meet with executives such as yourself at the OEM level. Um, but I can only imagine that there there must be instances where it's like, okay, guys, but you're not thinking about this. No, we are not here against you. We are not trying to destroy, <laughs> you know, retail. Because that's, you know, humans are absolute beings. We're like, have a little toothache and we're like, oh, I got job cancer or something like that, right? Yeah. Um, and that certainly tends to be the the case from what I observe where the rubber meets the road. They They don't anticipate all of the things that you guys are dealing with at your level, and it translates down here at... Oh well, they just want to get. This is just another ploy to get rid of the dealer network. Yeah, Mike, What are your you thoughts may, on that?
1: Well, you may have recall. I think I said it, and it was in one of the interviews that I did recently. I think it might have been with Stuart Barney and Fox. Uh, we I referred to it as a Rubik's cube, and uh, you know, every day um, uh, the the sales operations leaders here and our supply chain leaders are meeting uh, to discuss uh, where the chips go. But it's really interesting um, because it's not about a chip just going to a factory and then getting put in a car and we get got a car. Uh, the chip goes into a module A get chip gets built, goes into a module, goes into a component, goes into assembly and maybe 12 weeks or, you know, 14, 15 weeks later, that uh, may end up um, in a vehicle someplace. And uh, it's not just that one chip. There's other chips coming from another direction in another component. They've all got to arrive at the same time to build. And if you're absent one or two or three, you can't build that day and maybe you have to close your plants and you know that there's been some you know plant closures along the way as a result of for, for everyone in the industry so it's a it's a rubik's cube we work every day we roll up our sleeves uh, internally and then working with our suppliers who have been tremendous in this uh, um uh in this shortage uh to figure out exactly where those chips need to go so that we can all bring the exact same spot at just the right time to build a car so far. We've been pretty successful. They supply, um, certainly lower than it's been in many, many years. And that has some disadvantages. Um, but it also has some advantages as well. And, um, uh, you know, I would say our, our, we've been able to keep up, uh, mostly, but, uh, uh, I think the industry, uh, will be stronger for all of this in the end. Yeah. I love it. Well, I am
0: so fascinated by you and so delighted that you were able to join me here on The Dealer Playbook Podcast, and I want to thank you for your time today.
1: Mike, thanks so much for having me, and, and let's catch up on that other conversation later.
0: I'm Michael Cirillo, and you've been listening to The Dealer Playbook Podcast. If you haven't yet, please click the subscribe button wherever you're listening right now. Leave a rating or review and share it with a colleague. Thanks for listening.